behind the coffee bar Waiting for the next smile The windows are fogged It's been raining for days People coming Welcome back to The Exchange, presented by Olam Specialty Coffee, hosted by Mark Inman and Todd Mackey. I'm Mike Ferguson. This is episode 10 of season 2 and podcast number 21. The topic? Providing equipment to retail accounts. A question and challenge that all coffee roasters face eventually. And now, here they are. Mark and Todd. Welcome to The Exchange, presented by Olam Specialty Coffee. I'm your host, Mark Inman, and with me always is my good friend and co-host, Todd Mackey. Todd, how you doing? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you tonight? I'm doing quite well. It's a uh, warm, uh, I would say balmy evening here in uh, California. Yeah, descriptor. As we're recording. That's, that's awfully nice. Yeah. So so warm and humid? Is it is it typically humid in the evenings there? No, not at all. It's, it's usually a dry heat, but uh, there, it's, it's harvest season here. There's fog in the morning and um then heat it's so you're getting some humidity here so it's uh unseasonably balmy and um i guess it's supposed to be that way for a while here but not not too bad here in the office interesting now is this technically part of like is this i've heard the term crush is that the season we're in or is that this more is, of a moment oh yeah no no we're fully into the crush now i mean it started uh, about a week and a half ago and this town comes to a screeching halt during that time. People that work in the industry are working, you know, 18-hour days. They don't go out. It's uh, people will say, I'll see you in November. And that's uh, until then, you know, any friend of yours in the wine industry is completely gone. Got it. Now, I mean, for, for folks who might be interested in wine and don't live uh, amongst, mm-hmm. you know, uh, amongst the wine in a, in a famous area and, and busy working area like you. Yeah. I mean, what it, what is the rhythm that you'd suggest in terms uh, to consider around the business for someone who wants to do some wine tourism? Like if someone wanted to visit Sonoma, is it now that you go because things are going? Is it after the fact? I mean, this is something we'll get into, I believe, in our impending origin trips episode as it relates to coffee. But, yeah. But practically speaking, when does someone who's wine interested visit Sonoma? Well, I mean, they've got the um, the visiting year round here. It's not there's not there's no bad time to come here. I would say that the 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 big markers are barrel tasting which doesn't happen now that's happening later after the wine's been sitting for a while and they're going to get into the barrels and taste it so if you want to taste young wines people come for that specifically there are um wine event weekends those are the big times of the year and there's kind of spaced out every few months so it'll be like tour of carneros valley or the russian river wine road and in those particular weekends you you pay a flat fee of I don't know, 50 bucks and you get uh, a glass and you and a map to a hundred wineries. You could just go from one to the other. And it's, you know, thousands of people here on any given weekend doing that right now. This is, if you want to see grapes being picked and, and all the bustle with the trucks moving around, um, people come for that, but there's really nothing for the wine tourists to experience during this time other than just seeing a lot of busy work now you must be busy i mean you have a side hustle going where you essentially are brought out to essentially raise your hand over the vineyard uh, from the highest point and and say <laughs> right. a, a blessing of sorts if you will yeah for the yeah harvest. that's my side hustle how do you manage all the all the moving parts 
you know, it's a lot to juggle this time of the year. I just, uh, it's, it's good planning. I keep a, a good day planner, you know, at the handy and uh, make sure I don't miss an appointment. We could only all aspire to be more like you, Mark. Yeah. But let's... Ah, well, you know. <laughs> Speaking of you, uh, <laughs> let's get into our our classic opening segment here for yes. uh, the coffee roaster and providing retail equipment. Uh, what is in your cup today? Well, tonight's a special night, and I've actually taken some photographs live while I'm doing this and uh, sent them to you in our producer Mike Ferguson to post on our, I don't know what page, wherever we do our stuff on, but some page where you can see us a picture of me uh, drinking tonight's. Uh, we ha- we had a submission by Moon Goat Coffee. They're down in Costa Mesa, California, Southern California, and they stoked us out pretty nicely. They sent uh, two coffees. Uh, the one I'm drinking tonight is the Burundi uh, Red Bourbon from Masanga Hill. And there's an El Salvador, uh, it's a, I think a San Jose, uh, it's a Pakistan uh, Bourbon uh, coffee, which I have not brewed yet. And he sent me his uh, roaster curve, uh, it looks like from his uh, cropster, uh, so I can see how he roasted this. And uh, an awesome, I mean, no joke, an awesome t-shirt, probably, uh, you know, for a roasting company, one of the nicest t-shirts i've ever seen as a branding and marketing giveaway shirt um very nice almost too nice but nice uh, enough so i'm to, actually wearing yeah, that nice enough that you're wearing it i mean that's i'm wearing it here in the studio no yeah my moon goat shirt drinking my burundi coffee which tastes delicious and uh and yeah it's a fantastic uh cup tonight so yeah he did a a, a quite a you know it's all on the lighter end of the medium spectrum of the roast real good expression of the you know nice uh, fruit notes, good dark red fruit notes, plum, um, some prune, uh, some good dark chocolate, Swiss chocolate, uh, w- very well balanced, uh, great body, just like an, a good nighttime heavy hearty coffee. So uh, enjoying that quite a bit here while we record on air. Yeah, that's great. We uh, So I, I'm not drinking this coffee currently, but we received uh-huh. the same care package or similar um, from Mr. Yardley himself and Moon Goat Coffee, which we are super grateful for. Um, shout out to uh, to David and the team. But but yeah, I mean, I I would describe this Burundi coffee as quintessential in that uh, the best way that you see Rwanda Burundi and DRC coffees. You know, ex- uh-huh. extremely sweet, uh, chocolate driven, structured, yes. and then really nice notes uh beyond the the plum jammy description you gave which i absolutely agree with there's also these really nice sweet mellow red apple notes that i just absolutely love in coffees like this so um really well done and 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 awesome to uh have the chance to speak about it on air um i myself i'm enjoying a can as per the use though it has been a (laughs) few um and i'm actually enjoying a, a beer that was gifted uh, by uh, another um, roaster partner of ours. This is Jacob Fela at uh, Blue State Coffee out in, in Connecticut. Mm. Uh, they're obviously active um, roaster retailer uh, throughout Connecticut, Rhode Island, and uh, up into Boston, Massachusetts. But I'm drinking um, Thimble Island Brewing Company out of Branford, Connecticut's Sea Mist New England style IPA, which is is Thimble Island an actual place? You know, it's interesting. I, I'd have to assume so, but I, I don't 
I don't have. Uh, I believe it's it's a network of islands, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to I, I'll have to look into this, but it, there is a. You know, obviously, Long Island is south of Connecticut, so there's a lot of there's a ferry network and a, a large fishing community that's out here. I, I believe the Thimble Islands are islands that s- sort of spur off uh, Long Island. Um, you know, if it's the same sort of land structure, uh, I'm not totally mm-hmm. sure, but but I believe it's a network and not a singular island. I'll, I'll have to look into that, and, and if there is ever a, a way that that comes back to discussion. I'll certainly bring it up, but uh, certainly grateful for this opportunity uh, with with the Sea Mist IPA, and it's uh, it's crushable. So I'm going to stay with it as we get into the coffee roaster and providing retail equipment. Whoa! Lo and behold, Mike Ferguson, our producer, comes to bat uh, with the Thimble Islands and the the designation. I am indeed <laughs> correct. It's an archipelago of uh, small islands in the Long Island Sound, uh, in the harbor of Stony Creek. Southeast corner of Brantford, Connecticut. Obviously, Thimble uh, being located in Brantford on the mainland. See, I thought it was a mythical island from Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, well, hey. So that I shows mean, you what I know. The story would have been good, but Mike would have had you there. So thanks, Mike, for the support. Yes. And uh, yeah, certainly delicious. Jacob, thank you for the beer. Um, but our episode tonight that we're getting into is the coffee roaster and providing retail equipment, which I think... Uh, a lot of folks uh, coming in in the small roaster space will have to appreciate or at least wrestle with a little bit. Um, if you haven't already run into this question uh, in a sales call, um, you certainly will. And um, Mark, I'll kick it back to you since I've been talking for a bit here. Sure. Do you want to set the stage for how this has come up in your experience and, and maybe a little bit of the institutional history uh, of what we're talking about here in terms of pressure on providing retail equipment for potential wholesale partners. It's funny that you bring that up because I just had a conversation with a client yesterday who wanted to go over this topic that he's struggling with in his particular marketplace. And and essentially what it boils down to is when you're negotiating a deal with a wholesale client to uh, have your coffee served in their location, if you're lucky, you never have to go down this road. But more likely than not, what's going to end up happening is, yeah, we like your coffee, we like the price, um, but the competitor's offering me a free brewer and grinder. What are you going to give me? And you get into this tug of war with free equipment placed in their store to brew your coffee. And uh, in the Bay Area here, in, in San Francisco Bay Area, it has been a real struggle for coffee roasting companies because it was the norm here for so many years. And to the point that people were giving away espresso machines and super automatic espresso machines. And, you know, before you knew it, for a decent sized account, you were putting in eighteen to twenty thousand dollars of free equipment to sell your coffee in their store. So um as a former wholesale roaster, I dealt with that. I had my own equipment repairman. I had my own, uh, I was, you know, selling equipment as well. And I had to create various programs, uh, A, to ensure profitability for my company and B, to, um, to try to mitigate the growth of this phenomenon in our territory because no roaster really wanted to participate, but we all felt obligated to play because we were afraid the other person was outdoing us in some way. Yeah. So in light of that pressure, I mean, before I even go here, let's let's I mean, do you have a sense of where this entered the market? I mean, I've always assumed that this was 
day one, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the beer industry, you see obviously that right. the longstanding history of, you know, large brewers actually financing full pubs and, uh, you know, you, the, the sort of old architecture is throughout uh, the country you go into like uh, you know small locals throughout the Midwest especially and you see you know the PBR and and Budweiser signs with with you know the bar's unique name noted underneath these stock right. signs that were stamped and pressed uh, you know by the hundreds and, and you know these bars were, were essentially outfitted by these large brewers as long as they owned the draft levers right and uh right this is essentially the same type of model you know do you do you know or is there any sort of oral history that's been passed down about this is this always been the way the business has worked or was it something that someone introduced along the way as uh, essentially a, an added value proposition that just kind of changed everything because it's certainly you know when i got into selling roasted coffee 12 some odd years ago this was the norm and it really was the largest question and we got it out of the way early in the meeting because, you know, if, right. if you know you don't want to go there, uh, it it didn't even matter to have any other conversation whatsoever. Right. Well, I mean, my belief was that this came from the commercial coffee industry where they did do a similar program to uh, beer companies where you had uh, the glass ball you know, the glass carafe brewers that, you know, you do the bun brewers, but they had the glass and the glass would have the branding etched on of the whatever, you know, commercial coffee company. And they would give, um, you know, a, a brew station with five burners, a, a bunch of those glass carafes. And, um, and that was the deal. And, you know, a grinder, which wasn't really a grinder. It was more pour the ground coffee in this dispenser and it dispensed the right amount of coffee per batch. Um, and I think, you know, at that point, the companies were providing filters, the little dump uh, dispenser that was portioned out and the, the brewers, how specialty got involved in this. I think it was initially when specialty was trying to establish its foothold in all the marketplaces was if you wanted to take the space of a commercial, you know, an old commercial, you know, like a diner that was selling, you know, farmer brothers or, uh, Boyd's or, you know, whatever, you know, coffee in your marketplace, you had to match what they were doing to get your foot in the door. So I think it it's somewhat, ch and in here in the Bay Area, that would be Peerless Coffee was a, a major one, Hills Brothers, Farmer Brothers, they were all, you know, giving all this equipment away. And then I think as specialty took off and as espresso got introduced into the market, it kind of warped that program because, well, that's a brewing equipment you know, a piece of equipment as well. So why would I pay for that? And the difference was, is that piece of equipment cost considerably more than a, a normal, uh, you know, a, a drip brewer with uh, just hot plate burners. When faced with this question, I mean, we can take a, a look at it and, and essentially close the door and say, wow, whoa, 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 it's not worth it. Um, we could also right. take a little more critical approach and say, well, first, what are the positives uh, surrounding providing equipment, right? If you're if you're right. the coffee roaster who's growing, you're wanting to you know pick off uh, you know post commercial accounts, let's say, uh, for lack of a, a real like uh, accurate designation, you're wanting to you know accommodate um, retail accounts that might be accustomed to having equipment. They might be actually tied to equipment, and all of a sudden, if they swap up to you, I mean, they literally have nothing to brew coffee on. Um, you know, right. what are the positives to you beyond just closing the sale? I mean, the first I think about is is quality control, you know, the ability to actually 
you know, reshape how the coffee is being put out. But, uh, you know, what else do you see there? In theory. I, I think that's in theory. I, that that often, you know, never works out that way. But, yes, I think that's the initial thing is you could establish your brewing parameters and your style of brewing with that client to maintain your product consistency or your product quality. A prime example of that, uh, that is probably the, the, the one that sticks out the most to me was Blue Bottle. When they, uh, it was somewhat reverse the psychology is if you wanted to sell their coffee in your store, you had to get rid of your brewer. You had to get rid of, you know, all of uh, the, the brewing equipment that you had prior to, and you had to buy uh, pour over stations and uh, I think they were using Bonavita cones, if I'm not mistaken. But you had to buy their uh, drippers, their drip station, and that's the only way you can brew coffee if you wanted to sell Blue Bottle. I don't believe they had any restriction on espresso preparation, but I have known plenty of uh, coffee companies that require you to use a certain brand of espresso machine because that's the one that they train on. That's the one that they either sell or, or, you know, repair, but that's the one that this particular company is deemed the espresso machine that expresses their coffee the best. So those are the requirements. Now, in many cases, they weren't giving espresso machines away. Um, they may offset the cost or get, you know, sell them to the, uh, the account at a dramatic discount. But, um, that's where I've seen that. I think the other thing is, it establishes an ability to keep competition out because the psychology is if you give somebody that much money in equipment, you're investing that much money in their place, that they're going to stick with you for quite a long time and you could make your money out of that uh, account. And um, and that can work and it also doesn't work a lot of the time. It depends on how you as the roaster set up that relationship. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and you, you're leading to the, the question of the moment, right, which is, how do you set up that relationship? Because you, yeah. know, you are laying out a tremendous amount of cash with a huge amount of risk and it's very insecure unless there's, you know, a, a super strong relationship. The assumption being if this isn't a brand new account, I mean, you're essentially, you know, coming on as a new supplier. What have you seen done that you feel like is the the most responsible way to structure, um, you know, a contract or a supply uh, agreement that that actually makes this type of investment um, w- worth the while. Well, Todd, not only uh, have I seen that before, I'm actually here tonight to walk you, the audience, through how to do this because I created one of these. Uh, it, it was quite successful, and as you know, Todd, I'd like to get here pretty early uh, before our show and prepare and have everything ready to bring value to our listeners. So, here's exactly <laughs> what I would do. <laughs> We created a formula. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we created, no, no, it's fine. Uh, we created a formula at, at my company, and it was through dialogue with a client. First, you want to just start the dialogue with a client of, look, I understand that the norm here is, you know, equipment is provided. But to be perfectly frank and open and above board, um, you know, you're in business to make money as am I. That's how we exist. That's how we are able to do the things we do. So, you know, I need to have, you know, if I'm going to make this investment in your company and to provide you coffee, I need to have insurances that I'm going to actually, uh, it, this is going to be a 
profitable or or fruitful venture for me. And if it's not, it's too risky and I can't do it. And that to me is the first litmus test because if they say, well, I'm not going to sign any deal or lock myself into any contract, I cannot stress this enough, walk away because that customer is the customer who's going to dump you as soon as they get a cheaper per pound offer, they get more equipment offer, they get some perk, they're going to have no loyalty and you will lose money guaranteed 100% of the time. So if they're not willing to even entertain an honest dialogue and and show the math behind this, just walk away. Yeah, but I mean, let's just say that the, at the yeah. core, Mark, this is not a transactional exchange, right? This right. you you are signing a contract as the supplier, just putting the machine that is an open ended, continual investment, incrementally speaking, over day by day by month by month, hopefully year yeah. by year. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Continue, please. So uh, we would first go over the, uh, you know, how many pounds a week of coffee do you purchase? The account, you know, has an average that they say we do this much. Okay, you work that in. So it's how many pounds per week average. We would calculate that. It actually was, a you know, write it in the box and you did the math in the contract. How much, you know, margin are you earning per month on this customer? The break-even point on the investment of the uh, of the equipment that they're requesting. So, what's the total cost of the setup plus maintenance? You have to figure out maintenance cost in here because that will come up. And what's your break-even point? And then what's your desired profit? And that's your term of the contract. So, in in a, in a perfect world, you want to be breaking even within one year of having this customer and. You know, then to me, I always wanted to double my investment. So I would make them do a two to three year deal uh, to make this worthwhile. If they agreed to it, they would sign the contract agreeing to stay with me for two to three years. If not, they had to buy the equipment in full at full retail price. So there was a, a, a stinger if they decided to walk away that, uh, you know, we would take them to small claims court and and get paid for this this uh, this equipment. At that point, they sign an agreement to maintain the equipment per a maintenance schedule. So we give them, you know, just daily maintenance, cleaning and, and maintaining the equipment. And then we would do periodic maintenance, replacing O-rings or, you know, sprinkler heads or, you know, you know, whatever maintenance going, you know, the putting the spring through the uh, the, the brewer uh, to clear out any, you know, hard water deposits and et cetera. And that was the deal. So it was a very loose contract that was based on complete transparency, showing this is how much we make when we do sell a pound of coffee to you. This is how where I break even. And so there was no mystery. And and in many cases, that was a very fruitful way to do business. And these people were very loyal. The biggest catch that we were talking about earlier that where I was kind of saying, well, in theory, this is great, is you give somebody free equipment. It doesn't mean they're going to take care of it. It's not their equipment. They don't own it. They didn't spend any money on it. And what I found before I started doing this contract is, uh, you know, a phone call. Hey, uh, you know, our brewers just brew, you know, your coffee just tastes like water. You know, come on in. Something's wrong with your coffee. You must be roasting it incorrectly. And you go in, you look at the brewer, you pull the basket out and the sprinkler head is gone. And it's just water coming out of that one hole and not brewing correctly. Where did the sprinkler head go? Ah, I don't know. Probably probably got tossed out when we uh, you know, cleaned it. And that kind of attitude, just I'm not taking care of this. This isn't my equipment. And if it's broken, you fix it. It was a nightmare. And it was just like, this is not what we're in business to do. 
these people didn't care. So you had to make this kind of formality and the structure around it. So they understand that this is a business deal. This is not just you're not doing them a favor and they're not doing you a favor by, you know, allowing you to sell your equipment in there. You're both in business to make money. You want their quality to be high. Uh, they want you to deliver good coffee and, you know, on time and when they need it and they need help when, you know, when they have emergencies. And if you're both holding up both sides of the bargain, you both should be making money. So it's it's okay to have these structured deals. I would say not having these structured deals will be at your detriment. For sure, for sure. Now, tell me, did you ever have to take action on uh oh, yeah. on like a terminated contract? So you actually ended up oh, in yeah. court pursuing it. Was that yeah. what was the the rate if you have to just shoot from the hip? I mean, if you put out 100 contracts, uh, you know, uh you placed equipment in 100 accounts this way under this contract, how many did you actually have to to, to act on when there was some breach uh, of that contract? It was far less than 1%. It really wasn't that often. Where it, where it happened more times than not was in the early days when you're desperate for accounts and you'll take somebody, even though you have that kind of that red flag in your head of these guys don't seem too stable and they don't seem to know what they're doing, but I you know they do decent volume. And those are the people that don't pay on time and they disappear. And I actually had a, an account that wasn't paying. And then I said, look, I need to come just confiscate the equipment because you haven't paid your bill in months. And every time I came by, the the cafe was closed, the door was locked, and you could see the the person behind the counter hiding. And it was just this mess. And um, But that's, you know, I chalked that up to my own inexperience and naivete. And, and I learned from that. And then once you really have your footing in business and you're, you know, stable, you tend to sniff out bad business quicker than, than not. Um, I did have a couple examples of large, decent sized grocery chains that just went bankrupt overnight and had no intention in paying their vendors. And those are the ones that it was even beyond small claims court. I mean, in one case, it was like a $75,000 claim I had to do. And it took me years in bankruptcy court to get paid back out. But on the other hand, I had accounts. I had, you know, large, uh, you know, for a while there, large um, out here, you know, Silicon Valley and all that, uh, dot-com and and, uh, computer industry uh, manufacturing facilities that, you know, I placed 75 brew stations throughout that they were running 24-7, and the amount of coffee they were buying a week was just staggering. If that word have gone sideways, yeah, I would have been out hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you know, at that that point, and even to this point today, these companies were just printing money. So it was a, a great deal for uh, coffee companies out here. You've been listening to The Exchange, hosted by Mark Inman and Todd Mackey, directed by Mike Ferguson. Our opening theme was Behind a Coffee Bar, by Identity. Our closing theme, Coffee, by Professor Click. All music is used under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon to finish the conversation on the coffee roaster and providing retail equipment. And now, your postscript. Wow! Salty dog! You can tell uh, Mike has to sit next to me every day now. Whew! He's tired of hearing me talk about sandwiches. Um... <laughs>